Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode is sponsored by Raytheon. Every day, Raytheon's most advanced capabilities, ranging from missile defense to cyber, help NATO allies protect what matters most. Our long-standing partnerships with European industry drive local innovation and allow small and medium enterprises to benefit from international programs and technology transfer. From outer space to cyberspace, Raytheon's network of interoperable systems turns data into defense, giving European partners the most modern and reliable protection. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU news and politics podcast. I'm Ryan Heath, the author of Politico's Brussels Playbook column. It's been a week of predictable surprises in European politics. After weeks of threatening to break through, the far right outpolled Germany's centre-left for the first time since the rise of the Nazi party. Back in Brussels, Martin Selmayr, the European Commission's Frank Underwood-style figure, arranged to jump from running President Jean-Claude Juncker's office to running the whole European civil service. But before we get into those intrigues, we're going to review the scary global stuff the risk of conflict and other geopolitics problems as seen by those at the Munich Security Conference. I talk now with Politico's chief Europe correspondent, Matt Kanichnik, and then we hear an interview Matt held in Munich with retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, who recently finished up as the commanding general of the US Army in Europe. Last weekend, the continent's premier gathering of securocrats, generals and general defence policymakers took place. It was the Munich Security Conference. And joining me now is Politico's Chief Europe Correspondent, Matt Kanichnig. He was there and we're talking to him from Berlin about how the conference went down. Hi, Matt. Hi, Ryan. So can you set the scene for us a little bit? What's it actually like to be at that conference? Is it really like the World Economic Forum in Davos or in what ways is it different or better or worse? I think it's a lot different than Davos actually in the sense that it's somewhat more intense. The entire event takes place in this one hotel in the Bayerische Hof in the center of Munich. So you don't have the kind of space that you have in Davos, even though that can also get quite crowded. It's also more focused than Davos, I find. With Davos, you have a lot of finance people there, a lot of corporate people, whereas Munich is really very focused on this uh, question of security, on sort of war and peace, if you will. So it it has a a much different feel to it, even maybe a a more urgent feel, given, uh, given everything that's going on in the world at the moment. 
And this year's themes, were they as depressing inside the hotel as it seemed from the outside? We had a lot of warnings, essentially, that we're closer to conflict than the world has been since the end of the Cold War. Is that how it felt for you and what, what stood out in your mind? Yeah, definitely. And the one thing that surprised me is that there weren't a lot of solutions or potential solutions being presented there. It was really mainly just a discussion about how dangerous the global security picture has become and is is likely to remain. If you look at areas like Syria and everything that's going on there now with Turkey and the Syrians and the United States, if you look at North Korea, if you look at Russia and the Baltics, wherever you look, there seem to be, you know, real dangers that could spill into a broader conflict. And I think that's put a lot of people on edge. And before we get to the US, who, who play a big role in the Munich Security Conference, what were the Europeans doing? Were they offering anything more than words? I certainly have this impression that Germany, for example, is, is almost delusional about what it takes to be a, a global player and have an effective defence. And to some extent, the EU and other Europeans aren't really far behind them. They've really got some kind of structural opposition almost to meeting those NATO targets and stepping up to the plate. Right. It was clear that the Europeans still aren't really on the same page when it comes to security and that the strategy that they have to the degree it exists really isn't fully baked yet. And you heard a lot of contradictory signals, I think, from the Europeans. On the one hand, they say they remain committed to NATO. And then on the other hand, they say they want to continue to push forward projects like PESCO. But when it comes to the question of financing of that, then it becomes much less clear how they're going to achieve this. And I think for the U.S. and for NATO sort of writ large in terms of Europe, this is the big question is, where they say, well, you know, that's fine to focus more on European security and to have these joint initiatives and so forth, as long as it doesn't take away from NATO. And it really isn't clear how they're going to do that, given the budgetary constraints on everybody and the political realities involving defense in countries like Germany in particular. So I think that discussion will continue. And for the time being, you know, maybe much to many Europeans' chagrin, they're going to have to continue to rely on the US. A number that really jumped out at me is one that Jens Stoltenberg threw out there, where he said that after Brexit, 85% of NATO funding is going to come from outside the EU. And so that um, brings me to Theresa May's proposal basically to have a really strong EU-UK security treaty. Did that go down well? What were people in the room saying to you about that? I think that that is just the reality and that most people have accepted that. But there again, on the German front, it's an interesting dynamic because the Germans also, they don't want to make Brexit look too easy politically. So I think that there's some reluctance to have the same kind of treaty that the French have with the UK, a security treaty, for example. They haven't gone and taken that step yet. But, you know, given the fact that the UK is a nuclear power and, you know, without it in the EU, the only one left will be will be France and just the overall capability of the UK armed forces. I think that the EU is going to kind of come to the realization that it's in its best interest to 
pursue some kind of broader arrangement with with the UK going forward. And it didn't seem that controversial, to be honest. And getting back to the US delegation, uh, who were the heavy hitters this year? What were the real statements that we need to look out for from stateside? Well, you, you certainly, the speech by uh, McMaster, H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor in the US, where he really took the Russians on uh, head on and said that the evidence of their meddling in the US election in 2016 was incontrovertible. That, I think, was maybe the main headline from the conference. And it showed, you know, that the establishment in the US, at least the security establishment, is very aware of the threat that the Russians pose to Western democracies, despite some of the the signals that we've we've heard out of the White House over the past uh, year or so. And you actually spoke to Ben Hodges, who recently retired as the commanding general of the US Army in Europe. We're going to listen to that interview in a minute. What should we uh, look out for there? Well, one of the things he talks about is the NATO target for countries to spend 2% of their GDP on defense. That's a big issue in places like Germany in particular. Donald Trump has put a lot of pressure on European allies to increase their spending to reach that target. But I started by just asking Hodges, who's been coming to this conference for quite a long time, about his impressions of this year's event. Well, the first thing is that the the strength of the U.S. delegation that's here from the Congress, uh, as well as Secretary Mattis and General Scaparati and uh, lots of senior Americans that are here uh, that helps continue to send a message that the United States is committed to security and stability in Europe, our allies in NATO, as well as our partners over here. So that that's number one. I was happy to see such a large congressional delegation as well as Secretary Mattis. The second thing is you can really sort of feel nations are, are talking seriously about security in Europe again, whether it's in, within the NATO context or the EU or multilaterally. So the, it's kind of like the, the level of seriousness about this and people being realistic about Russia seems at a higher level than what I remember over the past two or three times. Third and final thing, I think what I'm starting to hear is more emphasis, instead of just banging the drum about 2%, seeing people talk about what are the capabilities that we really need. And I think that's a much more effective way to get wealthier nations to invest is by saying, hey, here's the capabilities that the alliance needs, instead of just beating the drum on 2%. I believe in 2%, but I think that's more effective if we, if we approach it like that. There seems to be a bit of a disconnect between the perception in Europe and the reality on the ground in terms of the U.S. engagement here. Why do you think, though, that there is still this perception out there that they are completely withdrawing, that Washington is no longer interested uh, in Europe? We know why because of Trump, but given the fact that they are here and that they're continuing to engage on the ground, why do you think the Europeans are still so worried about that? Well, I think it's interesting that Europeans are, are worried or wanting more U.S. presence. Uh, I expect that from some, but I'm glad to hear that everybody uh, favors continued U.S. leadership in Europe. Everything that the previous administration promised at the NATO summit at Warsaw, this administration is delivering. Rotational armor brigade, rotational aviation brigade, rotational logisticians, pre-positioned equipment, enhanced forward presence, and the ERI, which was already very good, 
was increased by a billion dollars EDI. Now, Europe, European Deterrence Initiative, I think that's significant, and that reflects the Congress support, obviously. So I think that it's important that people talk about it, that they describe this, but, you know, you follow the money, follow the troops, it's there. Do you think one of the reasons that the Europeans are becoming more engaged is that they are worried about U.S. withdrawal? And in terms of the Russia threat, the Russia threat's obviously been there for a long time, and even in the recent past has been there since 2014 with the Crimean crisis and so forth. So do you think that is really what's driving uh, initiatives like PESCO and other steps that the Europeans appear willing to take now? You know, the European Union, a great institution, has been talking about security for a long time. This is this is not new. I think there's a combination of factors that have led to maybe this maturing, more happening. I think it's a good thing. As long as you have maintained transparency between the EU and NATO and we avoid duplication, I think it's a very positive thing. And frankly, you know, Russia, their actions have caused even uh, most the most skeptical nations or leaders to recognize that this is unacceptable behavior. And so whether cyber, economic, military, all these things that threaten stability, people know that's unacceptable. And then, I mean, I've heard senior Germans say that, you know, Russia only respects strength. That's powerful. How do you see Germany's role going forward in Europe in terms of security within NATO and within this new sort of EU initiative that they have? I believe that Germany is the most important ally for the United States in the world, our most important relationship. And I say that because partly the German brand is so respected around the world. Germany has earned a degree of credibility and, and respect on so many issues from human rights to education to health care to, of course, engineering, and sports, the environment, all these things. And so they've got respect around the world. So the United States should be pursuing Germany as a most favored ally so that they can help us. That, because Germany is a global power. They can help work, partner with us on all the issues we care about around the world, whether it's North Korea, ISIS, Iran, Russia, German leadership inside the EU. That's been essential in keeping the sanctions in place. Germany stepping forward to take on this new logistics command as part of NATO's adaptation is very important. And so I think we need to treat that relationship with that respect. Now, Germany absolutely can and, and should do more, but I think what we really want to see from Germany in terms of contribution to collective security is what I would like to see is more transport, expanded rail capacity, missile defense, ammunition and ammunition storage, but especially transport. That's essential. And I think that the alliance ought to consider maybe there's a way that if you do infrastructure that has real military value, maybe that should count towards 2%. Some very interesting ideas there um, from Ben Hodges on how to get to that 2% NATO target. Um, what else did you ask Hodges about? I also asked him about Russia and the Balkans. But I started by asking him to explain why he thinks the idea of having good infrastructure is so important to having the credible policy of deterrence that NATO has had in Europe ever since its founding. 
So deterrence is all about having capability, the capability to compel and demonstrating that capability and demonstrating the will to use that capability. Otherwise, your potential adversary will not be impressed by it, will not be deterred. And so part of the capability for the alliance is the speed with which we can move forces around to prevent a crisis from happening. And so the rail network, the road network, the bridges, everything that would be necessary for, for example, NATO's VJTF, the Very High Readiness Joint Task Force, or American forces or anybody's to move to a potential crisis area like Suwalki, for example, the Suwalki Corridor uh, between Kaliningrad and uh, Belarus, that is essential to be able to deter, to show the Russians that we can move as fast or faster than them. If we can do that, then I think the chance of a terrible miscalculation by them is uh, significantly reduced. If we don't show that we can move quickly, then I think they could make a mistake. That's why this infrastructure is so important. Another potential adversary that we heard about today a little bit from the German Foreign Minister Sigmar Gabriel was China and the role, the increasing role that China is, is playing in Europe and that the Europeans to some degree appear to have uh, been asleep at the switch as this was happening, especially in the Balkans. I think we did sort of take our eye off the Balkans. The U.S. has stayed committed to the K-4 mission in Kosovo. That's important. We work with Macedonia. We've attempted to work with Serbia. We've done a lot of exercises with them. But there is a sort of a, it's almost like we sort of plateaued. We, the, the Alliance, the West, we've plateaued there and probably need to put some more energy into the institutions in the Balkans. Otherwise, they do become vulnerable to whether it's Chinese influence or Russian influence, of course, is, has never stopped. How do you see the situation in the Balkans at the moment as regards the Russian influence in particular? There was obviously the case that we had in Montenegro uh, with the attempt to take down the government there. The, the fact that they tried to you know, topple a government that was about to join NATO, that's, uh, that's pretty significant. Uh, they clearly are in Serbia and influencing Serbia as much as they can to make sure that Serbia could never join NATO, and I think they're going to make it as difficult as possible for Serbia to come into the EU. It's not in Russia's interest to see Serbia become really more closely affiliated with Western institutions. I think we got to continue staying engaged there. Uh, I've had Serbs and Albanians at, at the highest level say, please don't pull out of K4, because they see K4 as the only anchor of stability in that region. That's the Kosovo force. I think that was uh, powerful. You look at Macedonia, surely Greece and Macedonia can come to some sort of a solution on the naming so we can get past that and focus on, uh, on what on other important issues there. So it's, it's a region that continues to have troubles, but there are so many good, what I think are good stories around there, including Croatia, Slovenia, Montenegro is a great story. I've met so many terrific people in Kosovo, in uh, Bosnia, in Serbia, uh, in Macedonia. So you can feel the potential is there, but somebody's got to grip it. What is your sense now of the atmosphere in Europe of the security situation compared, say, to when you first started out? Number one, more people are aware of it and recognize it. That's the main thing. I mean, in all the governments of Europe, people recognize that the environment really has changed, that this is not 
somebody saber rattling towards Russia or you know somebody hoping that the Cold War would come back. This is a real change in the security environment. So Sweden puts troops back on Gotland Island, for example. Norway working very hard to protect the northern flank of the alliance, for example. Uh, what all the nations are doing. That's number one. Uh, number two, I've seen a improvement and an increase in intelligence and information sharing, which is essential if, if we are going to protect each other from Islamic extremism and those kinds of threats. I think uh, what I've seen from the alliance working to uh, support allies on the southern flank of NATO, you know, who are faced with uh, challenge, you know, pressure from migration and Islamic extremism coming in through Spain and, and Italy from North Africa. So the cooperation seems to be at a higher level. And then finally, the alliance. I mean, under leadership by Secretary General Stoltenberg, you've seen real adaptation. I mean, think about the Wales Summit, then the Warsaw Summit, and what's going to be announced here uh, in July in Brussels. I mean, significant adaptation as this organization, then 28, now 29 nations, adjust to this new environment. That's impressive. I'm from Florida, and I'm sure that my home state could not pass a highway bill and then start work on the highway in the same year. Well, on that note, we'll end this. General, thank you very much for joining us. All right. Hey, Matt, thanks you. That was Politico's Matt Kunichnig uh, talking to Lieutenant General Ben Hodges at this year's Munich Security Conference. This week's episode is sponsored by Raytheon. For more than 100 years, Raytheon has proven its commitment to partnering with industries and allies in Europe to advance new technologies and increase protection against a full spectrum of threats. In a world of uncertainty, Raytheon is defending our transatlantic partners by creating trusted, tested, and innovative solutions that make the world a safer place. And now it's time to welcome back our Brussels Brains Trust, Lena Abarus and Alva Finn. Hello, ladies. Hi. So I'm coming from the perspective down under again. I'll be back in Brussels soon. But from where I'm sitting, European politics is getting so strange now. I almost don't know what is a WTF and what is normal and whether normal can be interchanged with good anymore. We've had ministers accusing other ministers of hating their country. There's a lot of what I would call dog whistling going on where nasty thoughts are being hinted at rather than overtly stated. And then out of the blue this morning, we have the news that Martin Selmayr, Jean-Claude Juncker's chief of staff, is going to get himself appointed as the secretary general, the top civil servant of the entire European Commission. What do you think? Is this uh, just putting some reality into the job title that Martin was always doing this job for the last three or four years? Or is this something else? How about you go first, Lena? Well, um, interesting news and um, a bit uh, not shocking. It would really, uh, everyone is expecting uh, Mr. Selmayr's uh, securing his next job after this commission. My only confusion here is like, isn't he already the Secretary General? I mean, isn't he acting already like that, even without the title officially? So now he's just going to have it uh, on paper and, uh, and made uh, public. Interesting that we would have uh, plenty of uh, Secretary Generals uh, from Germany. Don't forget we have uh, Mrs. Elga Schmidt as well, the Secretary General of the European External Action Service. And Klaus, um, Klaus Vella down at the European Parliament. Parliament. Yeah, so let's see. It's, a it's ma basically making the Secretary General role much more political, I think. 
But I don't think anybody is shocked because there was a lot of things swirling around about him wanting to stay on as uh, chief of staff, maybe in this dual role that a new commissioner, president of the council kind of thing would would happen. I don't think it's really it's it's juicy because I think anything about him is juicy because there's lots of gossip that goes around about him. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he just controls everything anyway. So so maybe the person we should feel sorry for is the soon to become chief of staff to Jean-Claude Juncker because what is this poor person going to do they're just going to be this puppet who sits there oh my god they'll be like weaker than a teddy bear oh it'll be terrible but (laughs) yeah good luck to whoever that person is yeah maybe if if it we'll buy buy you a beer we'll buy you a beer (laughs) from Australia please Ryan All right. Uh, Maybe one last quick point to alight on in the WTF section. I came across a Twitter thread and a new study from La Repubblica, the Italian newspaper, and it revealed that every single Italian significant political party has promised to cut national public debt, but they haven't funded any of their campaign promises. They haven't put them to independent economic scrutiny. And when La Repubblica put it to that test, it showed that the debt would go up in every single case if the parties got their way and were elected. Is that anything to be surprised or angry about? I don't think that's shocking at all. I wonder if everybody, like when in in every European state, if that would be the case, like can you actually afford your promises? Because yeah, when it gets down to the bargaining on the budget, things all change anyway. But it's very interesting that they did that. I was going to ask you, did they reassess what their promises were Mm -hmm. and then change them? And how much they delivered from them? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. I'm not sure the parties even reacted to the article. This is for this coming election campaign. I guess I just find it very strange. In Australia, we have something called the Charter of Budget Honesty. So every party is required to submit its campaign promises in a template form to the Treasury Department, which independently costs them. And then that's revealed for everyone to debate before the election. So, you know, can these parties fund their promises or is it a pipe dream? And I just, I just find it strange that European countries don't do something similar. Mm, that's I think they should idea. be inspired by Australia now. Mm. There we go. Cheers to that. Well, let's move on to a thumbs up. Alva, I think you may have a British thumbs up you want to put forward. <laughs> well, I, well, it's a kind of one of these debatable ones because we like to talk a lot on, on the podcast. But a thumbs up for perhaps uh, Renew Britain, which is a new party that's launched of total unknowns as far as I'm aware. They're inspired by the On Marsh movement and apparently have been in touch with them. And they are an anti-Brexit party. Uh, so I wanted maybe to, for us to talk about that. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? <laughs> it's a bit late, no? <laughs> Well, okay, here's a positive point. David Davis made this big promise this week that the UK would not become a, quote, Mad Max-style world borrowed from dystopian fiction after it leaves the EU. And I was like, my God, is that the bar we're setting now? That if you don't create a dystopian future, you're a success politically? And I guess the proof that it's not going to be Mad Max is that parties like this are starting up and there will be some kind of new debate there. Yeah, I think that my views on it are that no one has managed to kind of unite the fronts of the Remainers post-referendum. There's obviously a lot of different groups in, in, in Britain that have tried 
um, and kind of failed to get that much airtime. We know obviously Labour are like so non-committal about everything. They're like, oh, I'm not sure if they were really holding the torch for it. Well, they weren't holding the torch for it at all. So it's nice to see something political, like a real political party coming out of some of these movements. Maybe they can join up all, all of that work that's being done to ask for another, a second referendum. So maybe it's not too late. Uh, I do think it would have been better a long time ago. And it's nice to see, like, completely unknown faces joining politics. Now that we're on the movie theme, another thing that I found very amusing this week was a challenge put out on Twitter by a Telegraph journalist called James Crisp here in Brussels, where he wanted us to all put forward what movie we think best represents Brexit. If it's not Mad Max, what is it? I put out there Bonfire of the Vanities, what would you two recommend? Have you ever seen, I'm, I'm sure you have, Ryan, have you ever seen In the Loop, which was the British oh, yes. version of Veep? Yeah, I'm imagining it's kind of like that because, yeah, they all get into various spats and, and dramas and a lot of it is kind of uh, very entertaining. So I'm going to put forward In the Loop. Lena, are you voting for Titanic or something else? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I think Adam's family... Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> Teresa Wednesday or Morticia? Who's faster? Like that. That David I can correspond each character to one of the politicians oh, there. That's brilliant. I almost want to stop the podcast there. But unfortunately, we can't. We have to get through to MEP of the week now. Uh, before we start drawing some names out of the hat um, and giving you a recap of last week, I wanted to set the record straight. We've been getting some feedback online. And uh, some of that feedback was from people working for MEPs. And they thought this segment is a little bit too negative. And I wanted to put out there that I think, or at least hope, that the segment is a real mix of sentiments and that I think a lot of what we do here is down to the MEPs themselves. In reality, it is a brutal information landscape in 2018. More and more is demanded from public figures like MEPs in terms of what they share, how they share it, what taxpayers and citizens expect from them. I think even Jean-Claude Juncker has said the EU is on its last chance with citizens. So I think, from my perspective, step one of proving yourself to citizens is uh, them knowing you exist. But we'll take the hint that you want to know a bit more about the good work of the MEPs. But here is a really useful piece of feedback that we received from David Lundy, who's the head of communications for the European United Left and Nordic Green Left grouping in the parliament. So we really appreciated David's email where he came to tell us a bit about the work from uh, Hosu Juristi, who's from the Basque country, and Rina Ronyakari from Denmark. So Hozu was elected in 2014 and has been really active on issues linked to migration, including violations of migrant children's rights in the Spanish enclave on the continent of Africa, where there is a lot of asylum seeker traffic. And he's also been working very hard to highlight the situation of people in the occupied Western Sahara region near Morocco. And Rina, who comes from the People's Movement in Denmark, she has been focusing on workers' rights, David says, and has been working very closely um, with trade union networks in fighting back against attacks on labour rights and highlighting the costs of tax evasion. David pointed out that we were not likely to bump into these guys on a flight to or from Davos. So touche, David, uh, we take that um, on the chin. And we're very glad to hear about the work of those two MEPs. Now... Who have we got this week? Let's yeah. get the blue box. Get that box. Yeah. So the first one is Jakob von Weissacker. And he's with the S&D from Germany. 
from the SPD as well. I've never heard of him. Not me. But mm, not me. Okay. Well, we'll hear about you next week, Jakob. I'm sure he does great work. I'm really shaking them now. One for you, Ryan. That's for you, huh? Okay, I've pulled out of the hat via the proxy of Lena Gazine Meissner, who is a liberal uh, MEP from Germany. Sorry, Gazine, we'll have to meet next week. Cécile, cachez-tu Kayan from the SND and from Italy? And if I'm not mistaken, uh, she was a former minister in Italy. Yes. Cecile is one of the very few ethnic minority MEPs in the European Parliament. Exactly. She's one of 12 out of 751 who are not Caucasian. Uh, so Two of you know her, that's great. So yeah. next, next week we'll try and, and reach out to yes. some of them. Yeah. Absolutely. That will be great to hear from Cecile, um, from her perspective on the Italian elections, from her perspective on what it is like to be from a minority in the European Parliament, and on the legislative files that she's working on in 2018. So here you go. Three topics, Madame Cecile. Excellent. And I think that was a record. It only took three MEPs for us to find somebody we knew. So, see, things are on the up and up in the European Parliament. We're very positive here at EU and Confidential. almost three weeks to recognise and, you know. <laughs> Lena, Alva, thank you so much, as always, for joining us on the podcast. And now it's time to hear from last week's MEP of the week. Ava Carley spoke to Michelle Stoddart, who is our producer here at EU Confidential. What's going on right now? What initiatives you have or things you're passionate and working on? As you know, I'm chairing STOA, which is a science and technology committee. And uh, I'm working more on the perspective of uh, what is new also in my committee, so the econ and the e-trade. Bitcoin and the virtual currencies have been very interesting uh, how they developed this last year and there, there was a big hype. I think now it's, uh, uh, it's relaxing a bit. I think it's a, it's a revolutionary technology. So I'm working on that. Also, we're se- we have set up a science and media hub. We did a big event in November. It was about artificial intelligence and media and how this can affect and give us data but also they can create misinformation and this could become viral and change even political results so because we don't like to ban content this is against freedom of speech we created this uh, hub under my committee which is going to be an observatory for misinformation and we will try to provide the platforms or wherever this there is a concentration of of the disputed article with the option of another article, another point of view. When something is so new, how do you develop policy when a lot of people don't know about it and you're not really sure 100% mm-hmm. where it's going? Um, well, actually, because we are technology neutral, we have some principles, so we don't want to stop innovation. And the technology itself can be good or bad depending how you use it. We're trying to set some rules and say, and so the direction we would like the technology to take, but we cannot stop it. If you stop something or if you stop uh, Europe from applying or working on something, then another country might do that and then you're losing you know, the lead or um, you have to compete. So what we're trying to do is to, to set up some principles. I can say, for example, to not fund weaponized AI or robots and to make sure that they will not never be completely autonomous. So we have to make sure that there is always human control 
and there's going to be a switch of button. So another thing, I know you're very big on um, creating a modern Greece. Can you expand on that a little bit? About Greece? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So bureaucracy is killing everything by default. You have a chance and opportunity to take advantage of this digital single market we're trying to build and move faster. So, for example, being able to track transactions and make sure that the taxes are being paid, being able to uh, to make sure that and identify uh, who pays and not their taxes is really important for uh, for our country. Also, to to be able to modernize the system, the electoral system, the public services. We don't even have an ID that has biometrics or that you can use outside uh, Greece. So we have to change everything and modernize everything. We still have a lot of uh, a long way ahead. So Estonia is the, the country that's leading that. There are not so many countries in Europe that they are now far ahead, but Estonia is. And so we're trying to, to get best examples and try to move towards this direction. We're trying to help and give funding to through the FC project, the Juncker plan, which is something that I also worked, trying to reduce inequalities between the member states. We try to give funding for SMEs through the banks towards innovation. So to ask them to provide us with ideas for solutions to the problems that we have, the existing problems, which is something that is not very common. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? I think one thing that is important, because we talked about AI, and blockchain and my committee is that I suggested and I'm going to make it even more official now uh, by approaching the leaders of the parties to turn this uh, science technology committee into a committee for the future dealing with uh, data basically new technologies because I think that as you said it's it's there are technologies that are developing now but we do have to try to put some principles there and have to make sure that they will not disrupt everything without us being able to to predict or um, to protect work uh, environment jobs or the industries the traditional industries so and because data are becoming like a new golden fuel for for these new technologies i think a committee dealing with with that would be absolutely necessary so this is a suggestion that i did to have a future committee planning on uh, on the future of Europe. Well, thank you so thank much. Thank you. <laughs> That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. A big shout out to everyone who makes EU Confidential possible. Andrew Gray, Michelle Stoddart, Wei Dong Lin and Antonio Fernandez. And remember, if you haven't rated, reviewed or subscribed to the podcast, get in there now so that we can grow this community and keep getting better and better. 